This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Miguel Terran. In this month's edition, we're focusing on climate change and farming, with the 26th Conference of the Parties to the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change due to take place in Glasgow in the UK. Talking to us about all matters COP26 related will be Simon Wilson of the Green Climate Fund, IFAD's Director for Environment, Climate and Social Inclusion, Jotsna Puri, We'll be outlining the organization's focus on adaptation for small-scale farmers and the multi-million dollar Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture Plus program. We'll also be hearing about a new report from the University of Cape Town that tells us which crops are going to be hit worst by climate change in East and Southern Africa. Also in the programme, we will hear from IFAS President Gilbert Hungbo as he talks about the findings in IFAS Rural Development Report. Recently released, the report looks at food system transformation for rural prosperity. A little later in the podcast, we have news direct from the field in Kyrgyzstan and Georgia. Here projects are in place to adapt the existing impacts of climate change for small-scale farmers. Plus, we'll be talking to Tunda Lepone, a youth member of the Indigenous Peoples Forum who represents the Maasai people. She'll be telling us about Indigenous peoples and the climate crisis. We'll also be looking at some other solutions when we speak to Danielle Nirenberg, co-founder and president at Food Tank. Plus, Joe Pori will be back with recommendations on how to better design a climate finance project. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast at efad.org. And you can subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. The Green Climate Fund was set up in 2010 to provide climate finance for developing countries. Since its creation, it's helped developing countries realise their ambitions towards low emissions and climate-resilient pathways. With a portfolio of $9 billion US dollars, GCF is currently the world's largest climate fund. I had the opportunity to talk with Simon Wilson, Head of Communications of the Green Climate Fund, and I asked him what were GCF's expectations for COP26. Well, we've been waiting for this conference for quite a while now. It was postponed by a year because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, But there's some good signs. And compared to last time around, the US is now back on board the Paris Agreement. So we can hope to see a a stronger international resolution towards uh, climate change. And a number of countries have taken action on on, on one issue, which we hope to exceed some progress, which is on this concept of net zero commitments. So the commitments of countries that they will reduce their emissions to to, to, to zero by by 2050 or or even earlier than that. So that's one of the areas where we'd expect to see some progress around net zero. Another one more generally would be on climate finance. The financial part is a a key component of of the climate negotiations because all countries have to respond to climate change but not all have the means to do so. And that's why it's even more important than ever that the commitments that have been made in the past to deliver climate finance for developing countries uh, are realised, in particular this, uh, this objective of realising $100 billion per year 
climate finance by 2020, uh, an objective which, which has not yet been reached. It's really important that that is uh, restated and that developed countries in particular can, can show a commitment to going beyond that and providing the, the financial resources needed if uh, developing countries are going to deliver the kind of transformations that the world needs. How can GCF inspire climate action and make sure that it happens in developing countries? And can you give us an example of GCF projects? Even the resources that we have, you know, upwards of $10 billion is way, way short of the amounts of money that are needed to, to make the financial transformations in developing countries over the next 10, 20, 30 years needed if we're going to achieve the Paris Agreement goals and also if we're going to help developing countries to protect their populations from the impacts of climate change. Um, we hope to use our portfolio as a kind of lever, a large lever to, to enable others to, to invest funds in developing countries so that uh, we can increase the total volume of funding for, for climate action. One example would be the Global Subnational Climate Fund. Now, this is a program that we've set up this year where we're investing $150 million uh, to leverage equity investments of over $600 million to provide climate solutions at the subnational level across 42 different developing countries, uh, half of which are least developed countries. And I, I give you one example more in the, in the agriculture area. Um, one thing we're doing, in fact, with IFA is to try to increase funding for agricultural support to allow smallholder farmers to adapt to the impacts of climate change. And there's a large initiative called the Great Green Wall in Africa, which is aimed at trying to help the transformation of the Sahara region and help you know, reduce the impact of climate change on that region. What do we need to see UNCCC and the UN more generally put in place moving forward to make sure the issue of agriculture and climate change remains at the top of the agenda? Fortunately, over the last year, agriculture, adaptation more generally ha have risen up the agenda. And I hope that's maintained in the, the climate conference in November and beyond that. Uh, in January of this year, there was the Climate Adaptation Summit, which took place in the Netherlands, and that gave us a strong political momentum to focus on, particularly on the need for action on agriculture and climate change. So that, that's positive, but we need to translate that political momentum into action really now. And the Climate Change Conference uh, later this year is one place where that can happen. Of course, often the, the, the COP tends to focus on emission reductions, which of course are essential, but Developing countries in particular are calling for more and more action on adaptation, and agriculture in particular is, is, is a major part of that, so that we can build the resilience of smallholder farmers and others who rely upon them to the climate shocks that we've been seeing and experiencing increasingly frequently. And this year, there have been a number of examples of those kind of droughts leading to famines and leading to food security problems. So I'm hopeful that a combination of the political momentum which has been building, plus the increasing realization that climate change impacts are here and that they're having a devastating impact upon agriculture and food security will lead to a, an increased focus on this issue at the UN level, including at the climate change talks. That was Simon Wilson at the Green Climate Fund. Coming up, we'll hear from EFED's president about the latest rural development report. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Miguel Taran, and Brian Thompson in the studio in Rome. This year's Rural Development Report, produced by IFAD and Wageningen University and Research, focuses on transforming food systems for rural prosperity. In a recent interview with news agency DevEx, its editor in chief, Raj Kumar, asked IFAD's president, Gilbert Hungbu, 
Based on the report, what are the key actions needed to make nutritious food affordable and available, but also to ensure sustainable livelihoods for farmers in low- and middle-income countries? The, the challenge we have, this is not just a, an issue of the, the production, uh, or if you look at that, just the transformation or just the, uh, the distribution. It's the whole chain, uh, quite frankly, and also the value and creation. And um, more than often, what we, uh, we notice is that the small-scale producers, um, uh, today we know they produce um, 30 35% of our food that we, we, we consume um, on 11% uh, of the um, Arab lands. However, they are much more, the, the precarious community, they are much more at, at risk and, and vulnerable to um, um, different uh, um, weather conditions. So what we are saying is that it's quite critical that we look at the whole chain, not just on a silo approach, from the, the, um, the, the land management to the water management, to the production, to the access of, um, of, of uh, agricultural uh, inputs, then the transformation, the storage, to access to the, um, to the uh, different market and, and, and so forth. And that's why, uh, and without forgetting, of course, the nutrition dimension. And what we also are seeing our small scale holders, because of their vulnerability to the extreme weather condition, the climate adaptation side is also a huge dimension. So from the economic dimension, from the food security dimension, from the nutrition dimension, as well as the global um, protection of the environment. So all of that has to be um, in the same package. That's why we talk about the global food system approach. The last point I want to make that we know that the private sector has an important role to play in the transformation of the food system and in ensuring that we are much more uh, um, responsible in contributing to the, to, the, um, to the fight against obesity or overweight, all those um, challenges that we have. So we, you really have to look at the global and um, the global package. Maybe we could talk a bit more about the private sector here, because it is fascinating that we're in this moment of great innovation, a lot of it private sector driven in the food space. You have alternative proteins, there's urban farming, there's you know, new forms of renewable energy powering greenhouses. There's so much innovation happening in the food space. And yet there are millions of farmers who are still using really antiquated hand tools to you know, prepare their fields for planting. Do you think the private sector is going to sort of naturally get to the point where they see the opportunity of smallholder farmers and invest more in their technology and capabilities? Or how, what can you and groups like IFAD do to facilitate that transition of technology to the people who need it? Uh, first of all, I must say that, uh, and I'm very hopeful on that, the private sector, they have already identified uh, that, um, let's call it business opportunity that you are talking about, and more and more are ready to invest. Yet the challenge is that agriculture sector uh, remain not necessarily the most attractive when it comes to um, foreign direct investment or, or, or alike. That's where uh, institutions like our own IFAD we come to play. When we, we, we partner together with the private sector, then we know the ground, we know the small scale holders, we can provide that extra assurance that they need to be able to invest. Secondly, and I'm very glad you raised it, Raj, the, if you look at the whole technological uh, uh, innovation in technology, 
in the digital world, that's what really we need today. We need to bring um, innovation and not necessarily the, we are not looking for the, uh, the, the latest drone um, in, uh, in, for the scale, uh, small scale holders, but there's a lot of te uh, technology um, affordable and available that if we can allow the small scale order to access that, it will be a huge progress uh, in productivity that I mentioned before, and also in attracting the youngsters into the agriculture sector and provide either self-employment or not only job opportunity, but also fighting against, uh, against uh, the, uh, food dependency and hunger that we see in different parts of the world. Let's recall that if you take um, Africa, for example, is 70 billion of food imports a year. And, and 263 million Africans will go to bed tonight without necessarily a decent meal. So it's important for us to bring the innovation in agriculture. And I would expect the private sector to play a big role, but in partnership with the international community and also to the national authorities. Yeah, that's such an important point that Africa as a continent is still importing so much food and can't feed its own people. And yet there are opportunities here if we can increase the productivity of smallholder farmers. You know, the other element of that is when we think of private business, often we go right to the biggest companies in the world, especially the big tech companies. But what about the local small and medium businesses that aren't you know, farming themselves, but are in these local communities that support or connected to the broader value chain around farming? How do you see the opportunity there? And what, what is IFAD doing about that? In fact, that's where is our, our area of uh, our focus. Uh, you know, in IFAD um, with uh, um, other um, development partners, uh, um, three, three years ago, we created um, ABC um, Capital Investment, so we can invest directly to the youngsters, those SMEs that are in agriculture in all um, different levels of the uh, value chain, which is one. Secondly, in our core activity, we also invest directly uh, more or more in the private sector, in addition to the concessional loan that we provide to the government for the, for the rural area. But the, the, the last point I want to uh, mention like this, where is really where it does matter is really those um, small uh, entrepreneurs or agripreneurs that are looking for below five hundred thousand investment and sometimes even one hundred thousand investment or two hundred thousand investment. So by also working with uh, um, some national uh, banks, including uh, particularly something that we are focusing on these days is the public development bank uh, at the national level will be able to relay those financing at a small um, uh, amount level, but which are critical, um, not only to, to, to ramp up the uh, investment uh, in the local, um, um, or with the local uh, um, SMEs, but also to make sure that it can contribute to the reduction of um, um, food dependency and the, uh, um, the food security uh, issue. That was IFAD's president, Gilbert Humbu, talking to DevEx's editor-in-chief, Raj Kumar. You can download the whole IFAD Rural Development Report on our website, www.ifad.org. Next up, we're back to climate change, adaptation and small-scale farmers with Joe Puri. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Miguel Taran. 
Between the 31st of October to the 12th of November, Glasgow will host the 26th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC COP26. It's to focus on increasing climate ambition, building resilience and lowering emissions. I asked IFAD's Director for Environment, Climate and Social Inclusion, Joe Puri, what was IFAD going to push for during COP26? If you look at the entire universe of climate finance flows a year and a half ago, adaptation is underfunded uh, hugely compared to the amount of money that is going into mitigation. For, for every dollar that adaptation gets, mitigation gets $18, which basically means that a lot of the urgent needs for especially rural poor that are um, manifest and really important, uh, such as their ability to use uh, climate smart agricultural processes, such as using early warning systems, or even having access to food which can be grown sustainably, which is also a very important strategy to be deal with climate variability. Uh, and so my point is not that we don't want energy production to be focused on or that it is not important to think about resources going into this process, but rather to be thinking also about repurposing a lot of the flows of development flows going into developing countries to have a focus also on climate resilience and on adaptation. What EFAD results will you be promoting at COP26 to make this happen? EFAD, as you know, has uh, integrated climate into its overall investments and using the what is called the MDB methodology. So this is the multilateral development bank methodology for climate finance. Our ambition is that at least 40% of the resources that are going into our projects or so investments that are going into projects can be tagged as being climate positive. But in my view, that's not sufficient. I think we, uh, we are uh, not just saying that we are going to be climate positive, but also we are not going to do any harm. And so, for example, IFAD's own focus on its social, environmental, and climate assessment procedures, also called CCAP, essentially mean that we are ensuring that all of our investments do no harm at the basic minimum to climate, to environment or to uh, social indicators. What will you be telling people at COP26 about this latest iteration of the Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture programme? IFAD has been very strong on adaptation for smallholder agriculture from a time when it wasn't still fashionable to be in that space, right? So the ASAP or the Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture Program was set up in 2012 and is currently the largest fund dedicated to smallholder farmers so that they can adapt and build resilience to climate change. ASAP has basically improved adaptation capacity for 6 million small-scale farmers in 41 countries, has helped to sequester more than 60 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalents and brought in more than a million hectares of land under climate resilient practices. What ASAP is helping to do is really to first pilot, but also scale up a lot of innovative things, right? So on the technical side, whether it's adapted seed varieties, because of greater uncertainty that we are seeing have been adapted and adopted in Uganda, Mozambique, Niger, Madagascar. Uh, these have been done through ASAC. 
or it's climate smart agriculture, as well as alternate drying and wetting of rice cropping systems that have been introduced through our investments in Madagascar and Burundi. And then smart climate friendly storage and marketplaces that have been constructed. These are all technical innovations, but we're also doing really exciting financial innovations. Blockchain weather insurance systems that have been developed with uh, support from ASAP by Acre in Kenya has been piloted with 20,000 farmers and we're expecting to reach more than 300,000 farmers in 2022. And then last but not least, what I want to raise the profile of is also whether micro insurance information systems that are also helping us to build weather index insurance products. And so this is being done in Africa as well as in countries along the Great Green Wall area that is being supported also by the GCF. You're also releasing the Climate Action Report 2020. What are the highlights of that? I think really looking at it to see as to how we are using GIS technologies, for example, to target in a very precise way. Uh, using it to understand also what are the key results that we are achieving through our climate project and through our climate-related investments, as well as how we are diagnosing climate-related problems uh, using technologies as well as analytical systems like EXACT can be uh, very useful for a lot of people who are interested in this space, but also help us to understand as to what we are learning from our impact assessments and then I think the other thing that I'd like to highlight in the Climate Action Report is the fact that it also highlights where we've been working very closely with youth, with women, with uh, Indigenous people in areas such as Paraguay in Africa, as well as in Asia and the Pacific region, to bring them on in a far more active way while ensuring that there is high levels of productive investment. That was Joe Puri, and she'll be back at the end of the podcast talking about how to build better climate finance projects. Please tune in to any of our 25 podcasts and 200 plus reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 24, we talked about biodiversity and farming. In episode 23, we heard from Metherin Cousin about food systems for the future. And in episode 21, we spoke with the UN Food Systems Summit Deputy Chief, Martin Frick. Next month, in episode 26, we'll be focusing on the blue economy in East and Southern Africa. That'll be produced from Nairobi by Linda Odiambo. But next, we have a new report from the University of Cape Town that looks at how crops across East and Southern Africa will be affected by climate change. You're listening to Farms Food Future. The lives and livelihoods of smallholder farmers are among the most vulnerable to the impacts of global warming. In order to help farmers in East and Southern Africa, the University of Cape Town, with support from IFAD, has released a report with key insights on crops for smallholders under a changing climate. I had the opportunity to ask IFAD's Paxina Chileshi how weather is changing within East and Southern Africa. What were the broad trends and what were the main areas of concern? We all know that there is global temperature increase, but specifically for Eastern Southern Africa, we do expect increases of temperature in the range of 2 to 2.6 degrees Celsius by mid-century in terms of the precipitation. So in some areas, there will be late onset of rains. There could also be earlier cessation of the rains. 
and we would be able to see in some areas longer rainy periods. So all of this will have an impact on our agricultural productivity. Overall, there's also an expectation that the amount of annual rainfall will reduce in some areas in Southern Africa by at least 100 millimeters per year. Overall, for the Southern Africa region, it will be drier. So we will anticipate more prolonged dry spells during our agricultural production seasons, but also droughts, which may be more frequent, more intense. In Eastern Africa, this will be a wetter region. So here we'll have more flooding that will be caused by the extended rainfall periods. And some of our coastal countries are also affected by cyclones. So these will also become more frequent, resulting in destruction of crops, but also the infrastructure. What are some of the major negative impacts in terms of crop production the reports uncover? The reports focused on suitability mapping of priority crops. And priority for us in this case is the crops that are important for the small-scale producers. Through this, we do know that the ability to respond to a changing climate is very low. Our producers have limited information. The suitability mapping revealed that key important crops, such as beans, for example, in Angola and Lesotho, will see a reduction in the area that is suitable to grow beans, but also a reduction in productivity. For staple crops, such as maize, for example, in Zambia and Malawi, this crop will become more unreliable with fluctuating yields, but more importantly, the yields are expected to be lower. And we have to be able to support the farmers to be able to address uh, some of these challenges. Are there any opportunities for improved production of certain crops within ESA? There's definitely opportunities. We can have improved locally adapted varieties. We can also have more drought tolerant crops, increase the area of production for these crops. We can also have more drought tolerant variety of the maize crop, so early maturing varieties. We can also improve the production of these particular crops by encouraging farmers to adopt soil and water conservation techniques, such as in the drier south, conservation agriculture with minimum tillage, ensuring that there is our soil cover with the different types of crops and also mixed cropping systems. We can also support the farmers with improved water management infrastructure. So whether it is flood control or improving irrigation systems so that they're more water use efficient, and farmers will be able to produce more crops all year round. What does the information help you do better as we move forward? As we move forward, the information helps us at three different levels. Firstly, to improve our designs of projects and programs, ensuring that they are more informed. Secondly, to be able to target solutions better in particular areas, so where we do know that particular crops will have uh, decreased suitability, we can look at how we can either promote alternative crops or be able to promote different varieties of those crops. Thirdly, the information also helps us in the planning and in terms of the resources that are required, so for the different support that is required at the different uh, levels, so whether it is support to the governments or whether it is support to the small-scale producers, 
we are able to have the right resources from the human side, but also from the investments that are required. And last question. What will be the main changes you will be proposing to ministers and farmers on the ground? So the main changes would also come in three key changes. The first one is the further development of the locally adapted uh, varieties. So whether this is looking at drought or flood tolerant crops. The second change is increasing the accessibility of timely and reliable seasonal forecasts. This also has to go hand in hand with ensuring that the small scale producers have the ability to use this information. So be able to, to know when to plant, when to harvest, and also in terms of the techniques that they'll be using on their farms. The third level of change is looking at investments in climate resilient infrastructure. We also look at infrastructure for water management, so whether it is flood protection or improving efficiency in our irrigation schemes, which help the, the farmers be able to produce more and use the water more efficiently. That was Ifaz Baxina Chileshi from Nairobi, and you can download the report from the University of Cape Town from IFAD website at www.ifad.org. Coming up, we'll be talking to Tundale Pone, a youth member of the Indigenous People Forum who represents the Maasai people. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Miguel Terran. Tundale Pone is a youth member of the Indigenous Peoples Forum at IFAD representing the Maasai people. She advocates for the preservation of positive cultural practices in her community and to ensure the rights to land and natural resources. She is currently working with Slow Food to conserve the local red Maasai sheep breed. I asked Tunda to explain why is it important to preserve traditional agricultural practices. Traditional agricultural practices are known to be so important in uh, different many ways. And uh, I'll say traditional agricultural practices intertwined with the culture of the community and uh, the land and spirituality. Uh, they make use of locally available resources to nourish the soil and also to in dealing with uh, pests and diseases. Uh, also traditional agricultural practices uh, involve saving of traditional seeds and uh, also agrobiodiversity in safeguarding uh, rich biodiversity. Uh, while uh, new agrarian techniques are known to be uh, less associated uh, with the culture of the community because uh, resources required, most of them are from outside uh, with no connection to the community. And there is, uh, is excessive use of uh, agrochemicals while using the new agrarian techniques, which are uh, also not good to our soil. And then uh, la uh, lastly, the main uh, focus of our new agrarian agriculture is to increase food production, income and profit without uh, majorly uh, focusing on sustainable or better food systems. What are the benefits of conserving and promoting the red Maasai sheep? Animal keeping uh, is, is the most important activity in my community and the main source of food for the Maasai people and a symbol of wealth. The red Maasai sheep is... Um, 
a breed that uh, represents my community in, uh, in terms of color, we love red, uh, identity, and hence uh, the name also, the Red Maasai sheep also carries uh, a big uh, importance in itself. So uh, according to FAO in 2000 and 2007 uh, research, uh, indigenous uh, genetic resources from Africa and the world at large are threatened in extinction. And the red Maasai sheep was not spared or has not been spared. And despite its uniqueness, characteristics, and ability to withstand harsh climatic conditions, the red Maasai is endangered and is at risk of extinction. With the pandemic hitting indigenous people hard, how is it possible to fight climate change, but at the same time develop and improve people's livelihoods? The continuation of preservation of indigenous local breeds, uh, which are more adaptable to our environment, is very important. Uh, and the red Maasai sheep is just one of uh, the kind that we are really preserving. It's very important that we ensure there is a capacity development in uh, intergenerational knowledge sharing, the young continue to learn from the elders and work on improving the knowledge they have to ensure that uh, we are we continue becoming innovative and utilizing innovative ways of uh, modern farming techniques uh, to ensure there is uh, no broken link uh, between the traditional and uh, the modern farming techniques because we have our own food sovereignty and techniques that we've used over time and also embrace diversified farming that is uh, agro-pastoralism whereby we are also doing planting crops and explore the use of uh, farmer culture, use of uh, organic ways to produce one's food to ensure that uh, pollination continues to take place, uh, embrace mixed farming to curb diseases, the use of manure and uh, other organic ways to fight um, diseases, insects and pesticides. And finally, what are the main problems young rural small-scale farmers have to face in your community? Our young farmers are faced by several challenges ranging from climate uh, crises, biodiversity laws, access to financial services, land accessibility, access to market, engagement in policy dialogue where the youth are not invited to participate uh, as decision in decision making and the policy dialogues. And uh, in order to resolve the above problems, we must ensure that uh, there is meaningful involvement of the youth in the rural communities over time to ensure that a social economically stable future is achieved while we give respect to our ancestors, our parents, who for a long time have been resilient and showed resilience in their, in their way of life and portrayed the resilience to ensure that our culture is intact. That was Tunda Lepone. Up next, we're going to hear from Renaud Coleman about climate adaptation in Georgia. This is Farms Food Future. In recent years, Georgian smallholders have suffered the consequences of bad soil, strong winds, and high temperatures caused by climate change. This has led to big production losses and significant threats to their food security. But it's possible to mitigate these effects 
with the use of climate smart techniques. Thanks to projects like Amar, Georgian farmers are able to adapt and mitigate the climate change. I asked IFAD's Renault Command how does IFAD address challenges in areas with bad soil and desertification in its projects. IFAD usually work in the areas where there is potential to improve the life and the, of the rural people. So usually when the geographic targeting is done at design, the design team together with the government, the local partners, the grassroots uh, organization and the local population, they will uh, identify the main issues encountered, in this case, uh, so what you say, the bad soil and the desertification, and they will choose the best approaches and the best practices uh, adapted for local conditions. And they will also keep some space for innovation and pilots. Here in Georgia, for example, if I choose to work on the landscape restoration, so mainly with uh, wind breaks, and in the promotion of climate smart agriculture, uh, mainly related to water use efficiency and uh, soil uh, health. What sort of equipment has the Amar project given to Georgian farmers? So in the, in the case of Georgia and Georgian smallholders, they have currently a low capacity to adapt to the challenges uh, posed by climate change and, uh, and environmental degradation due to their limited access to financial resources, mainly to new technology and to adaptation knowledge. So if I had worked on the, the availability of irrigation water through rehabilitation of uh, irrigation canals, but also on market linkage facilitation, as well as targeted investments to develop on farm production with, uh, for example, greenhouses, uh, drip irrigation, small size mechanization, quality ceilings, and composting and vermicomposting equipment. The project AMAR also piloted windbreak plots to protect the crops from wind erosion and desertification. But the project did not just provide equipment and material, it also put in place a network of farmers around demonstration plots uh, with uh, lead farmers. And so under AMAR, this, the, the service provider like uh, Elcana provided training and organized exchange visits between regions and uh, around those uh, demo plots. What have been the benefits of introducing climate smart agriculture practices in this area? So there are many in the case of AMAR. The project promoted use of sprinklers, drip irrigation system to improve water management and efficiency and the adoption of uh, conservation agriculture systems. So the combined use of uh, reduced, no-till, uh, soil mulching, uh, vermicomposting, uh, crop rotation, and diversification, but also integrated nutrient and pest management. And uh, finally, also uh, windbreak establishments, as mentioned before. This to improve soil fertility, soil carbon, and water storage. So to mention some figures, a survey in 2019 revealed that 48% uh, of climate smart grant beneficiaries reported that the quality of their harvest had improved in 2018 compared to 2016 against only 6% in the control group. It's also noted in the project during the supervisions that uh, there is more diversification in production from uh, the supported beneficiaries. Why are windbreaks so important for Georgian farmers? 
So historically, the windbreaks, uh, they played a significant role in moderating the microclimate of uh, fields and crops and vineyards in Georgia and protecting soil from wind erosion in the plain, specifically in the central and eastern semi-arid regions uh, of Georgia that are really prone to wind erosion and desertification. So what the windbreak does is uh, directing winds over and around uh, the protected areas. So the main results of uh, AMAR was to establish uh, more than 53 kilometer long windbreaks uh, and protecting more than 2,700 hectares of land from wind er erosion. If we take the AMAR's investment in, uh, in the windbreak pilot, combined with uh, you know, the, the solid contribution during a, a legal framework for windbreaks, um, this has opened a wide scope for windbreak development uh, countrywide. And um, finally, what are EFED's future expectations on Georgian agriculture? So all the experience acquired by IFAD and its partners in the, in the country, they, they will support the future interventions in the rural areas uh, in Georgia. IFAD they will continue working, of course, on inefficient use of water, uh, healthier soils, uh, knowledge sharing through demonstration plots, especially for the ongoing DEMA project, but also for other initiatives in, in, the, in the country. We will also work on a better access to finance for farmers using the pre- and post-finance methodology. Also, the, the government of Georgia, they contacted uh, IFA to continue the efforts of AMAR on the windbreaks and mobilize more funds to scale up, uh, you know, this particular uh, project interventions on windbreak. Based on this, IFAD expects that Georgia agriculture will be more adaptive to climate change, but also more respectful of the environment with less impacts at uh, medium and long term, and with the uh, rural population more uh, resilient to climate shocks. Thank you to Renault Command. Now it's time to head over to Kyrgyzstan with Oliver Mundi. This is Farms Food Future. Livestock is a major activity in Kyrgyzstan, where over half of the country's total land area serves as pasture. Livestock-based systems produce their own greenhouse gas emissions. However, they can potentially be climate-friendly if they're used correctly. IFAD has several projects in this area and uses tools like the Global Livestock Environmental Assessment Model Interactive or GLEAM-I to fight against climate change. I asked IFAD's Oliver Mundi what were IFAD's main objectives in Kyrgyzstan. IFAD uh, has and had had several projects in Kyrgyzstan, uh, mainly supporting the livestock sector. These projects aim to improve animal health, up livestock value chains and and strengthen pasture management. Kyrgyzstan is a livestock country. A large part of the land uh, is uh, covered by pastures and are used by about 1.7 million cattle and 3.6 million sheep and goat. We work a lot together with pasture user unions and the agencies supporting them. All livestock keepers uh, of one municipality are represented by a pasture user union. And so by supporting pasture user unions, we support vulnerable and poor households. So there are various ways how EFAT projects support pasture user unions. For example, we finance uh, animal health facilities, uh, we finance uh, rural infrastructure, uh, or help uh, support uh, setting up pasture management plans. How does the Global Livestock Environmental Assessment Model Interactive, GLEAM-I, work? The Global Livestock Environmental Assessment Model Interactive, or in short, uh, GLEAM-I, is a tool developed by the Food and Agriculture Organization. 
The tool calculates greenhouse gas emissions coming from the livestock sector. Most uh, greenhouse gas emission assessments uh, simply look at the number of livestock and multiply it uh, with an emission factor. The Gleam I tool allows you to go deeper as it takes into account how the herd is put together, what the animals eat, and how the uh, manure is used. You get, therefore, more accurate estimates. It also allows you to test different scenarios. And most importantly for us, it allows us to identify the best measures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Can Glimai discoveries be used in other areas? What we did in Kyrgyzstan is to use the Glimai tool to estimate uh, the potential emissions, uh, emission reductions coming uh, from a new EFET-funded project that is planned to start next year. Um, our colleagues from the Food and Agriculture Organization uh, did the calculations. Uh, we had a series of meetings with animal health experts and livestock production experts in the country to set baseline parameters of the tool. Um, the results show that it is possible to increase pro uh, total production of meat and milk uh, by about 4%, while cutting emissions by uh, uh, around 17%, and this without having to uh, increase the number of animals. And the last question. How is it possible to boost the livestock and reduce the greenhouse emissions at the same time? Based on the results of the Gleam I tool, our colleagues uh, from the Food and Agriculture Organization suggest a combination of different measures uh, to reduce emissions uh, while increasing productivity. Uh, the first one is to breed cows at a slightly younger age. This uh, would reduce the number of female calves needed for replacement. This in turn decreases the number of meat animals in the herd, shrinking over herd size. So the same amount of meat and milk can therefore be produced uh, with fewer animals, reducing both the, uh, the total emissions and the emissions per kilogram of meat and milk. Um, the second measure is to improve animal health. Animal, uh, healthy animals produce more meat and milk than sick animals do. Vaccination and better veterinary services are therefore crucial uh, to reduce mortality rates and to increase mi uh, milk and meat production. The third measure is better fodder production. Better feed also helps keep animals healthy and productive. Emissions can therefore be reduced uh, even uh, further by reducing the amount of low quality feed and increasing uh, the amount of uh, high quality feed. Lastly, the amount of carbon sequestered in the soil of pastures can be increased by supporting sustainable pasture and herd management. Uh, we conducted another assessment uh, using satellite imagery where we compared pasture conditions from 2000 to 2005 with the average conditions uh, from 2016 to 2020. The results are pretty clear. Pasture conditions are worse off. This means we need to continue our efforts to improve the management of pasture resources. And we need, therefore, more pasture resting, seasonal um, migration to summer pastures, and rotational grazing. This will help not only uh, the climate, but also help small producers to produce more meat and milk. That was Oliver Mundi. Up next, the president and co-founder of Food Tank, Daniel Nirenberg. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Some people don't have enough food, while others are eating too much. There's only one way to fix this problem, according to the people at Food Tank, and it starts with you and me. Food Tank offers solutions and environmentally sustainable ways of alleviating hunger, obesity, 
and poverty by creating a network of connections and information for all of us to share. Food Tank is also for farmers and producers to collaborate on providing sustainable solutions for our most pressing environmental and social problems. Danielle Nirenberg is co-founder and president of Food Tank. I asked her how Food Tank sets out to do all of this. Food Tank's mission is really a, a very simple one. We want to uh, really highlight stories of hope and success and what's working on the ground to help alleviate hunger, obesity, poverty, food loss and food waste, uh, help solve the climate crisis. We, we really want to shine a spotlight on the organizations and individuals who are, who are doing the good work around in, improving our food and agriculture systems. So, so how in particular does Food Tank work for, for small scale farmers in developing countries? One of the things that we do is, is we put out a lot of information and, and we've um, been able to, to do uh, really interesting interviews with farmers all over the world. And we think by having um, that ability to, to share their good work that other farmers, whether they're small or medium or, or large scale farmers can learn from those examples that, that farmers are, are doing you know, everywhere from, from uh, you know, um, the work that's being done in Malawi, uh, to uh, improve uh, soils through cover crops, to what women farmers in Kenya are doing through growing sack gardens, to, to maintain food security in urban and para-urban communities, to you know, farmers, markets, managers in places like Minneapolis who really had to pivot over the last year during the pandemic and, and come up with you know, very safe and interesting ways of, of distributing food. As we approach the, the, the climate COP26 in Glasgow, how, how do you feel the, the issue of climate change can be solved by more research and investment in sustainable agriculture? I mean, I think we have a lot of, of obstacles to overcome. I, I think many leaders and, and policymakers around the globe still don't understand the connections between the climate crisis and our food and agriculture systems. And on the one hand, you know, food and, and agriculture are one of the biggest drivers of, of the climate crisis. But on the other hand, the, if, if we change our food and agriculture systems to be more sustainable, they can be one of the biggest solutions. So it's really helping, I, I think, policymakers and, and other leaders understand those connections and see that there's a huge opportunity that if we invest in agriculture in, in, in the right ways and in, in ways that nourish both people and the planet, that we can make a huge difference. Are there any good practices in particular that you will be highlighting? I, I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, things like I just mentioned, uh, cover crops, for example, can add nutrients to the soil, they can sequester carbon. It's regenerative farming practices that are really focused on, on uh, giving back rather than just extracting nutrients from soils. It's uh, what farmers are doing in, in places like uh, Niger to, to organize women into uh, cooperatives so that they can uh, uh, grow uh, drought resistant crops. It's, it's a whole range of factors. There's no one tool or best practice. It's that sort of collective commitment and that collective urgency to solve these problems that I think is really going to, to build the momentum. So just, just as a final question for you, what would be the, the, the ideal outcome from COP26? What would you like to see them saying needs to be done? That 
major investments in food and agriculture will be the, the outcome of that meeting, that global leaders and, and companies and, and those in the funding and donor communities will realize that you know, we, we can no longer wait, that we can't make commitments that are for 2030 or 2050, that we have to do the things that will, will solve the climate crisis now. And that's investing in farmers, that's investing in sustainable agriculture practices, and that's really uh, you know, investing in, in youth who are going to have to take on these problems that we created, and they need a lot of help moving forward, whether they're, they're farmers or researchers and scientists or activists and advocates. That was Food Tank's president, Danielle Nirenberg, and you can find more about them at www.foodtank.com. Coming up, Joe Puri is back, and she's telling us how to design better climate finance projects. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Climate change affects small-scale farmers in many ways. This can be droughts, higher temperatures, or floods. That's why when designing a climate project, it's crucial to adapt the program to the existing problems. That means targeting the most vulnerable areas. EFAD's Director for Environment, Climate and Social Inclusion, Joe Puri, speaking to the EcoSound Bites podcast, gave some recommendations on how to design a better climate finance project. <clears throat> if you um, were to um, recommend something to listeners in terms of, of project design in the climate finance area. What, what one or two recommendations would you make to people? In the climate finance area? Yeah, in climate finance. So we've got listeners who are trying to develop GCF projects or for other types of climate fund, um, funds. Um, what should they, what do you think they should really pay attention to in doing that type of work? Yeah, so I, I think um, a few things, right? And um, I think first, and I alluded to this already, um, definitely participatory processes and engagement right from the beginning. Um, second, um, understanding, fitting the solution to the problem and uh, not the problem to the solution. I think um, the fact that we had really strong engagement on the ground um, has been really critical in ensuring that we are uh, that we are building um, a very sharp set of interventions on the ground that can uh, hopefully um, really target some of the key vulnerabilities, both climate-induced but also um, man-made, uh, so anthropocentric uh, vulnerabilities on the ground. Third, um, I think um, I would definitely, and uh, again, you alluded to this, um, uh, look at the evidence um, and, and learn what we already know in terms of what works, what doesn't, for whom, and why. Fourth, um, I think collaboration. Um, you know, there's so many agencies and so many people and so many types of actors that have been involved in this process, and I, I can't overstate the amount of coordination that it is required. Uh, but if we if we really want to 
do this in a successful way. Um, I think the time uh, for collaboration uh, should be seen as a key pillar of designing any such uh, investment. Um, I also think that um, we should use these investments for innovation. And uh, we spoke about some of these innovations, both in terms of process. Well, collaboration and engagement is not an innovation, but I have to say that the way it was done for the Sahil program um, was, is, was not just, it wasn't just cosmetic, right? So, and that is important as part of priming as well. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, product innovation. So thinking about the um, digressive insurance mechanism, I think this is really exciting. And one of the key things that I am hoping as well is a learning from this as to how much it's working and how much it's not and for whom and why. And then, you know, doing the next scale up and informing the next replicated investment, uh, because it would be almost tragic if we didn't. And um, last but not least, I think a critical thing to recognize about climate is that, of course, it has no boundaries, right? So the fact that this is a regional project really uh, made us focus a lot on, on ensuring that these transboundary concerns about climate, about risk, about um, risk preparation, about risk adaptation and risk transfer are taken on board. And, but it also um, is, uh, on the other side, I think, makes, makes us far more sanguine because we can benefit from the economies of scale. Joe Puri there talking to Eco Soundbites podcast. And you can hear more at www.ecoltdgroup.com. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, colleagues at Debex and Eco Soundbites, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Coming up, a special edition for episode 26 on the blue economy in East and Southern Africa in December. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about all stories and issues discussed and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcast at efad.org and send us your voice and text messages to the address and we'll be happy to play you in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of November with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Miguel Turan and the team here at EFAD, thanks for listening.